You're tuned in, tuned up, and ready to go. Welcome to Ria's Ham Shack, a weekly conversation about amateur radio, shortwave listening, and radio tech, hosted by Ria Jirum and 2RJ, and heard weekly on WRMI Legends Shortwave. And now, here's your host, Ria. Wow, where does the time go? It is Friday once again, if, if you're listening on WRMI Legends. And this is Ria's Ham Shack, heard right here weekly on WRMI Legends 5050 and probably some other frequencies. I am Ria, my call sign is N2RJ, and I'd like to first of all thank everybody who makes this possible. Ted Randall, Holly, and um, everybody at WRMI Legends, and also the staff at WRMI who keep the, the tubes glowing and keep the station running uh, jeff white and his entire crew down there in okeechobee florida so this week we got a, a little bit of an interesting show i'm going to talk about the fcc getting some new enforcement powers uh, does this mean anything for ham radio we don't know we're going to talk about um, de-expeditions and why hams do them why do hams do de-expeditions you know because there have been a couple of them back to back i'm going to talk about the various types of de-expeditions and why different ham radio operators do them and some of the mechanics of de-expeditions of course we will talk about the news and we will take your questions and answers if you would have feedback for the show you can send it to ria at n2rj.com that is romeo india alpha at n2rj.com and um, any questions i'll read them on the show if they're interesting enough or even if they're not interesting who am i to decide and of course um, you can also qsl the show you can send your qsl card you can send your qsl requests to p.o box 73 that's p.o box 73 sussex that's sierra uniform sierra sierra echo x-ray new jersey and the zip code is 07461 in the United States of America, no matter where you're listening, especially if you're listening in somewhere that's a fantastic place with a lot of strong people, such as Ukraine. Okay, and of course, all the other parts of the world, the world is a wonderful place. All right, let's take a break and come right back. So in case you didn't know, Aria's Ham Shack is on YouTube and you can go to youtube.com forward slash at N2RJ. That's a YouTube channel where you can find a lot of great video content that's a companion to this radio show. You'll find the weekly live with Ria streams. You'll find my general class licensing videos. You'll also find other interesting videos, news, tips, tricks, and how to get the most out of your amateur radio and other types of radio. I talk about GMRS. I talk about FRS. I talk about MERS, CB radio, whatever kind of radio. Even I talk about the FCC and the FAA and the kind of trouble they're getting into. Okay, right here on Ria's Ham Shack. Yes, we are Ria's Ham Shack. YouTube.com forward slash add N2RJ. YouTube.com forward slash at N2RJ. So apparently FCC has some new enforcement powers. And this has to do with pirate radio. So there is a there is an act called the Pirate Radio Act, right? The Pirate Act. And it's some sort of acronym for um, preventing illegal radio abuse through enforcement pirate because, you know, they, they always have to have some acronym for these things that sounds catchy, 
like how they did with um, the USA Patriot Act, which was basically, they should have called it the Civil Rights Violation Act. You know, I hate taking off my shoes in the airport. I don't have to do it anymore because I have global entry now. But um, it's just dumb. But anyway, um, they have um, the uh, this radio station in New York, uh, Radio Impacto Dos or Radio Impacto 2, they were sort of a, a pirate, they were a pirate radio station that broadcasted on 105.5 FM in New York City and Queens. And they were targeted towards the Ecuadorian community because, you know, there are a lot of Ecuadorians. There's a lot of Latino, Hispanic people in New York and a lot of some um, Spanish speaking. So they and a lot of immigrants. So naturally, there are some of these radio stations and services that cater to them. The commission had previously, so this is from RadioWorld.com, the commissions had previously issued uh, Luis Angel Ayora. So um, Luis, um, he was was one of the owners of the radio stations. He issued him a $20,000 forfeiture in 2015. And the marshal service executed a warrant and then seized the equipment but um, they, um, the commission actually increased that fine to 80,000. No, not, this was another one. They actually, um, the FCC, under this new act, raised the fine to $2.3 million. And this is crazy. Now, you know, I could see both sides of it. I mean... You know, I I hold this view that the government really doesn't own the airwaves, just like the government doesn't have your rights. I mean, if you know the U.S. Constitution, for those of you outside of the United States, because we are an international service, our Bill of Rights in the United States is actually recognition of our rights endowed by our Creator. So these are rights that are pre-existing And if you're like me and you believe in a God, and I believe in a God as a Christian, you know, um, these rights were given to me by God, okay? They were his gift to me when I was born. Whereas, you know, if you're not, if you're not um, a person of faith, that's okay. Um, But you will admit that these rights come naturally okay so they're natural you're born with them okay so we can agree to disagree and we can agree at the same time and um one of these rights is a right to free speech like i am exercising my right to free speech here now the government tries to say that you need a license the government tries to say that you need permission a permission slip mommy may i and um you know, in some respects, they, they might have a legit use case. You know, the actual need for radio licensing came about when the Titanic was sunk. And basically, they accuse, among people, amateur radio operators who weren't officially part of an amateur radio service, but they were pretty much just radio experimenters who ended up jamming the Titanic transmissions because, um, you know, they were just transmitting all over the place. So they formed the Federal Radio Communi- the Federal Radio Commission, and then the FCC came out of that later on, you know, for better or for worse, you know. There needs to be some um, regulation of the chaos, but I think sometimes, you know, uh, 
especially since the FCC says it has no more new FM and AM frequencies. Well, you know, maybe they should come and broadcast on, on this radio station. You know, there's plenty of airtime available and um, the rates are quite um, reasonable. So anyway, um, so the FCC has this new enforcement powers now. And um, there are two cases in New York and Oregon because Oregon didn't go anywhere. Right. It's not Oregon. It's Oregon. And um, the New York case has a larger penalty and of course new york is the largest market and um you know they they have this so but you know this really would not have any effect on amateur radio because amateur radio is not covered under broadcast service and the way amateur radio works is that we are largely self-policing meaning that we we essentially regulate ourselves and we hopefully behave good yes there are some bad apples if you tune to 7200, you know, kilohertz, 7.2 megahertz, or you tune to 14.313 sometimes, you will hear, you know, you will hear the miscreants. You will hear the noise. If you tune to some of these de-expeditions, you will hear the absolute idiocy on the airwaves. You will hear people jamming the living daylights out of each other, right? And um, you will hear, you will hear the worst. But at the same time, you tune to most of the bands, you know, you hear people just carrying on, you know, people will, there might be a little tough uh, uh, kerfuffle here and there, but for the most part, they carry on. But, you know, the FCC actually also signed a memorandum of understanding with the ARRL. And with that, um, my friend Riley Hollingsworth, K4ZDH, who is a former FCC enforcement counsel, he signed on to that program and he's in charge of that program and he's recruited a bunch of volunteers to help him. And what they do is they do two things. One, they issue, um, you know, warnings to radio amateurs saying, hey, you know, you violated the rules. Um, you might as well uh, shape up because if you don't, well, you know, we'll refer the case to the FCC. Really bad cases get referred to the FCC right away. They don't wait. And then the other thing they do is they also issue good operator reports. So, you know, this is a this is a good thing. So it's a good program. It's a program I fully support. And Riley is a good person. So and, and he obviously enjoys doing this work. And I'm happy for him. But, you know, no, the FCC, um, frankly, I think the FCC really doesn't want to have much to do in amateur radio in terms of regulating it. The FCC would rather, in my opinion, would rather have us do as much of the self-policing as possible. They don't want to micromanage us, unlike in times past where they essentially held a firm grip onto the amateur radio service. Before my time, they essentially went and um, they regulated amateur radio to the hilt. You know, I don't know if we want to go back to those days. I mean, some people long for those days when the FCC had that, but frankly, they don't have the time nor the money. They, um, the FCC, first of all, they're, they're self-funded for the most part from fees and license fees and such like that. Um, this is what my friend who, who used to work at the CBO, she told me, and um, the Congressional Budget, Budget Office. But um, for the most part, the FCC really doesn't have time for us, which is why probably they're sitting on all those old petitions. You know, they really don't have the time to give us the time of day which is quite sad, actually. I wish they would kind of, you know, get it over with and get some of these things over with. 
But um, that's how it is. But, you know, pirate radio, if you are a pirate broadcaster or an aspiring pirate broadcaster, watch out. The FCC is coming down on you. No doubt motivated by some others who want to to see these pirate broadcasters go down. Um, For a while, they had the low-power FM service, and my friend Michelle Bradley, KU3N, she um, she was one of the consultants who actually does work on applying for an LPFM license, but I don't know what happened. I don't know. Um, there's always internet, radio, and of course, there's always leasing time on shortwave, which is great. All right, well, let's um, take a break, and we shall come back with the news right here on Ria's Hamshack, right here on WRMI Legends. So, you know, one of the great things about having an HF radio is the ability to work DX, but you need to know where you can find this DX and you can actually find all the latest news, tips, tricks, scuttlebutt and on the scene reports at dx-world.net. That's dx-world.net. My friend Call and his fabulous crew of correspondents bring you all the latest DX news from around the world right into your ham shack. Okay, so check out dx-world.net and they also supply the news here on Ria's Ham Shack. So if you want to get the source of the news, you go to dx-world.net. That's dx-world.net. So let's jump into some DX news here. And DX, we're talking about Sable Island. So you know the Sable Island DX Expedition is going on. And I'm going to talk a little bit later in the show about DX Expeditions, why they happen and how they happen. But um, this is from dx-world.net. So the CY0S, which is the current team on Sable Island. And Sable Island is a little island off the coast of Canada. And uh, it's famous for its wild horses. And, you know, it's a nature preserve and it's a park. So it's it's an interesting place. Um, The CY0S team had to abandon real-time logging updates. So... A lot of these the expeditions actually upload their their contact log in real time. And they had to abandon that because the internet on Sable is not stable enough. Wow, that rhymes. And drops out fairly regularly. And there's a lot of issues. Um, all the logs will be sent to Bill K5DHY about every six hours. Which is still good. They have four HF stations set up as well as a six meter satellite and a two meter EME. That's Moonbound Station, and um, they they they're spent all day Tuesday assembling and installing antennas, and the team settled into their operating schedule at midnight UTC on Wednesday, and the weather has been good. High winds are forecast. They begin to take the necessary precautions for antennas, and all the guidelines have been tightened. And 42-inch anchor post driven deeper into the sand. Nice. And um, they did have an issue with time sync on the FT8. So, you know, FT8, the mode, must have um, accurate time. Because, basically, the transmissions start on the top of um, 15 minutes of every hour. So, 15, 30, 45, and, um, you know, again, the top of the hour. There's a lot of stuff over at dx-world.net. There's a lot of pictures. They have some, I guess, some seals on the island, which is interesting. Seals, like actual animals. 
and they're there. They also have some um, that some dead um, whales wash up ashore. Um, very cool, very cool. So very nice. Capa uh, Verde D4NA. So Timo OH1NOA OH1NA will operate as D4NA from Sal Island, Cabo Verde, AF086, that's the IOTA designation, during March 30th to April 6, 2023. And um, it's a holiday-style de-expedition and a plan to activate two new worldwide flora and fauna areas. Um, They're using a a Shegu's G90, which is a Chinese radio, 20 watts. Interesting. First, I've heard of that radio being used on any de-expedition. Usually they're using Elecraft or ICOM. Um, Fiji uh, 3D2 AJT um, Zorro. Um, so Zorro, remember Zorro? So Zorro was an amazing um, Japanese radio amateur. He was JH1 AJT. And Zorro, you know, Zorro was not just a radio amateur, he was a humanitarian. He ran his Foundation for Global Children, FGC, and essentially he would go all over to different countries and do charity work for children, you know? Because I'll tell you something, children are innocent, right? Children are, you know, they, nothing that happens to children is really their fault. It's the fault of us adults. And it is our responsibility as adults, as elders, as parents, as, um, you know, as as elders in a community, we were given that duty to take care of the children, and we must do that. So Zorro actually took that seriously. He had a foundation. Um, he built a lot of infrastructure for children in different parts of the world. He was very kind. He was a gentleman. He was Japanese, and you know, one thing about the Japanese radio operators, they're very, very polite, okay? And they were very, very, um, not just polite, but, you know, they have manners and they have respect for elders. So Zorro, and they have respect for the world. So Zorro actually did that. So anyway, this um, D-Expedition, not D-Expedition, uh, Dom3Z9DX, uh, he's running a, going to run a special event station, 3D2 AJT for the next 10 days. And um, that's from Fiji. He will be active on... Morse code, CW, on single sideband, voice, FT8 and FT4 modes, and QSL via club log. So you go into club log and get the QSL. Ghana, um, they have the 9G4X team, and um, uh, the team, the U.S. portion of the team, seven U.S. team members from JFK Airport to Accra was delayed almost 2.5 hours due to a maintenance issue with the planes. Surprise! You know how many times I flew out of JFK airport and flights just delayed after delayed. At one time, I flew to Korea on the Airbus A380 and it was delayed. Oh my gosh. But um, the A380 was nice, by the way. And flying into Incheon airport in Korea was nice. I want to go back. Yeah, so two and a half hours to get to their um, QTH. And so, yeah, they have like a little hut there in Ghana and they are um, getting ready to operate radio. Very nice. Very nice. 
So lots of good DX. If you want to find more DX news, you can look on dx-world.net. So next uh, is an item of news here regarding the sun. And by the sun, we mean the star at the center of the solar system. And uh, there was a surprise geomagnetic storm in the early hours of March 23rd. So a crack had opened up in the Earth's magnetic field and stayed open for more than eight hours. We had solar wind coming through and um, we had a G3 class geomagnetic storm. So this resulted in some bright auroras, essentially the northern lights in some of the northern parts of the United States as far south as Montana. And we're probably going to see a lot of more of that. I mean, the sun is becoming really active. On February 23rd, they had, um, you know, uh, a big um, growing sunspot and an M-class flare. But um, we are seeing a lot more uh, stuff as the Earth's solar cycle is um, ramping up. So hopefully we'll see more DX, but we might see some more disruptions you might see some probably this weekend during the cq worldwide wpx contest which is going on this weekend uh, we will see you know the solar wind is um pretty high and then you know we have some solar flares and lots of sunspots this is going to cause some pretty interesting propagation conditions that we are going to see here on Earth, of course, with regard to, um, you know, shortwave radio propagation. So look out for it. And, of course, we have some special events worldwide, and I will um, call them out for you here. Uh, HH5, HH75RCH, that's Hotel, Hotel 75, Romeo, Charlie Hotel. That is for Haiti Radio Club. And uh, they were established on 29 March 1948. And this year, of course, is going to be their 75th anniversary. They're going to be active until the 1st of May. Uh, you can QSL via Club Blog or via N2OO. Uh, Bob Shank in uh, southern New Jersey. Uh, you also have GB1PAT and GB2PAT. These are call signs for... Uh, Bush Valley Amateur Radio Club between the 1st and 28th, and they're going to be celebrating St. Patrick's Day. So they have some nice certificates and QSL via Logbook of the World. Uh, A60AP, uh, that's Alpha 60 Alpha Papa. They're going to be active until 31st of August, and these are to celebrate the United Arab Emirates astronaut program, and of course, some. Um, the this uh, uh, prepares the crews for United Arab Emirates astronauts for missions to the ISS and other um, destinations in space. QSL via EA7FTR. Okay, and um, this news, by the way, is courtesy of the RSGB, and uh, they they have their own newscast. There is a lot of um, news uh, at their website. Uh, rsgb.org.uk and of course they have a lot of uh, news uh, specifically for um, Britain 
Now, here's another story about um, amateur radio. So this, whenever you see this in the news, this is from um, Metro here. You always hear them talking about amateur radio hobbyists. And it sounds almost derogatory, but I, I, I don't know what to make of it. But, you know, you always find radio amateurs receiving strange signals. So in this one, this was the case of amateur radio hobbyists catch, catching Russians talking about recovering downed U.S. drone. So ham radio hobbyists appear to have obtained audio recordings of the Russian military trying to retrieve a U.S. spy drone. They were monitoring publicly accessible airwaves after the MQ-9 Reaper drone was downed following an encounter with two Russian warplanes last Tuesday. This is from the New York Times. The radio intercepts started about eight hours after collisions in the Black Sea in what was the first recorded physical clash between Russia and the U.S. since the Ukraine invasion began. And the clips revealed conversations between multiple Russian ships and aircraft over a four-hour period discussing attempts to recover the drone's engine casing, nose, wing, and gas tank. At this moment, we brought up three parts of the frame, uh, one unit codenamed Appelsin, Orange was heard saying, now I'm proceeding towards a helicopter to search for more. And um, they have um, a transmission about the vessels declining fuel reserves and concerns about whether they will have enough to make it back to shore. Okay, um, very interesting. So uh, there are many uh, there are many types of things that radio amateurs are known for listening into. You know, we, we listen, of course, so many of us radio amateurs are actually also very keen listeners in terms of part of our hobby is to listen, right? We love to listen to various um, signals and not only listen with our ears, but also to decode with special equipment. For example, the radio amateurs were, list, were decoding video from the SpaceX video transmission. So whenever SpaceX launched like a satellite or launched... Um, you know, a Falcon Heavy or Falcon 9 rocket into space, they would have video and they would show like when the stages detach and when these um, uh, rockets were going back down to Earth to land on the drone ship, either, um, of course, I still love you, um, or the other one, I forgot what it was, but um, they have drone ships and, and you know, they land on there. Um, and they were actually getting pretty good quality video until, well, you know, SpaceX decided, well, you know, um, we don't like that. We're not comfortable with that. So we're just going to encrypt everything. I'm pretty sure that our government kind of just um, prompted them because, you know, SpaceX is a defense contractor as well. But yeah, so we do listen to a lot of things. You know, and I enjoyed doing that. I mean, I could tell you about the statute of limitations of some of the things I used to listen to which were um, not quite within the boundaries of the law, but I'll leave it at that. And, um, you know, I know the statute of limitations passed, but, you know, there are things that you shouldn't be listening to. <laughs> yeah, um, but, you know, radios could be modified and all sorts of stuff. So pretty cool. Here's another story about Malaysia. Here's where the Malaysian Amateur Radio Transmitter Society, Marts, will carry out the Malaysian peak-to-peak -peak communication simulation, and um, this was on uh, this was earlier this month. They had uh, 117 radio amateurs from various clubs, and they 
they did a simulation, I guess an emergency exercise. So they have they have some pretty high um, uh, peaks there, 1,217 meters above sea level. And um, they have um, several radio amateurs are carrying out uh, signal experiments. They're even using modes like DMR or C4FM, which I guess uh, they use the Yesu system fusion as well, too. So pretty interesting stuff out of Malaysia. And um, they're also uh, using HF to communicate overseas to other countries like Singapore and Thailand and Indonesia. So those are, I guess, in that region, you know, they help out each other. Just like we did in the Caribbean and Trinidad and Tobago, we had the other islands helping out each other in case of emergencies. Okay. All right, so that is the news, and we will come right back. All the ways to listen to Ria's Ham Shack, let me count the ways. The first and the best way is, of course, on WRMI Legends 5050 on your shortwave dial and other frequencies as appropriate. You can also listen on the podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You can listen on WRMILegends.com where we have it on the live stream. You can catch it on Ria Hamshack YouTube channel. Just look for youtube.com forward slash at N2RJ. I publish a show and it's always a few days after it airs on WRMI Legends. And if you want to get the show first, you go on WRMI Legends 5050 shortwave or on WRMILegends.com. Of course, you can also go on WRMILegends.com to find out ways to support the show and support the station and to keep the tubes glowing and keep the fabulous shortwave programming coming. Now back to Ria's Ham Shack. Okay, let's talk about Q&A. And you know, I'm going to deviate a little bit from the, the usual here, technical questions, but let's talk about travel. So those of you who are familiar with tech, you know that Asia, specifically Japan, is one of the tech meccas of the world. And Japan, you have some areas to buy radios. So there's this question, can anyone tell me the locations of amateur ham shops in Tokyo, Japan? Um, apparently this person is going to, to Tokyo. And um, well, my friend Karsten, uh, DM9 Echo Echo, he said uh, you go to Akihabara and Yodabashi. So um, Akihabara is pretty much the electronics mecca of Japan. It is probably, you know, it's a tourist destination, I'm guessing. But you go there, you have all sorts of technology. It's a big village. And then you have Yodabashi. You have, um, you know, a lot of, it's like a basically a big mall, a big electronics mall. You know, when I, I was in Korea, I actually went to the Yongsan Electronics Market. And the Yongsan um, Electronics Market not only has new electronics, but they have a whole bunch of old um, electronics, basically junk. You know, they have um, 20 buildings, 5,000 stores. They sell appliances, stereos, and all sorts of things. And, you know, I, I bought quite a few things there. Of course, some of it you have to be careful because uh, you're buying stuff that's that's designed for 220 volts. And then you have to be careful that if you're coming back 
to somewhere like the United States that you can bring it back. Things that are problematic could be things like batteries and, and other, you know, restricted items. You can't take those on airplanes. And also 220 volt stuff probably not work well, although most things actually have, um, uh, most devices have dual voltage. So you're not really going to, to have any issues. By the way, if you've been watching the YouTube channel, I've actually been conducting tests with AM radio in a Tesla. I know some people, some Teslas, including my Model Y, omitted the AM radio. And that's kind of disturbing because I, you know, I used to listen to AM radio. I listen to AM radio sometimes. I listen to New York City radio stations like WCBS 880, 1010 Winds, uh, 77 WABC, that big 50,000 watt blowtorch right there in broadcasting out of Lodi, New Jersey. It's a clear channel station. It's one of the, the biggest in the United States, I think. And um, yeah, so I was a little bit, um, you know, disturbed that I couldn't get my favorite radio station. Of course, you can get them on streaming. You have to pay the Piper. You have to pay the Elon tax. You know, you have to pay the Elon tax of, I guess, um, uh, 10 bucks a month. Well, I paid 100 bucks a year for the premium connectivity. That money's gone and it's probably, I'll get it back. And uh, I'll have to pay again in September because that's when the billing comes up. But yeah, um, they want you to do streaming. But I've been doing tests on AM and AM radio has been kind of, you know, um, there were issues reportedly of RF interference, but I haven't seen that because I've actually been able to use a portable AM radio in the Tesla and it worked quite fine on AM. In fact, the newer Tesla Model Y that I have actually works better than the older Tesla Model S I had in terms of RF shielding and RF interference. Some people were saying, well, you know, these Teslas are giant noise generators and such like that. And look, you know, I get that people don't want to own electric vehicles. Some people, um, I am fully in a lifestyle. Okay, I love, I love electric vehicles. I will never own another gasoline car, and that's my choice. But um, I think the RF interference issues are not really grounded that much in reality, to use a pun. So here's a, another question about this one about amateur radio exams. Question for VCs. Is there a particular reasons why some applications are submitted online versus being mailed to the FCC? I passed my tech exam, as did many others, yet to receive anything from the FCC. Some seem to get their call sign within a day or two, others wait a while. Is it up to the VC as to how the info is submitted, or is it designated by what kind of training they have, digital versus paper tests? Mostly if it's up to the VEC, I might check with the group and see if I can help out and submit the testing info online. So um, recently, of late, the there are two... Um, there are two things at play here. One of them is how the paperwork gets from the exam V team to the VEC. Now the VEC does the actual submission to the FCC. The VE teams send the completed paperwork to the VECs and then they um, end up doing the submission. So VEC stands for Volunteer Examination Coordinator. This would be somebody like Laurel Amateur Radio Club, Anchorage VEC, W5YI, 
and GLARG, Greater Los Angeles Amateur Radio Group, and of course the ARRL VEC. And some of them have been kind of hesitant to uh, adopt technology. The ARRL, for example, has uh, basically held out for a long time on electronic submission of applications and instead has chose to go with paper. So that means that the VE teams would submit their test results via paper. And this would go through the mail. This would take a week or two. It would take a long time. Now, what happens is that um, they, uh, there is a site called Exam Tools. So there's examtools.org and examtools.org does all of the um, the submission to the VEC electronically. That's one of them. Uh, there are some other methods. Um, some of them, you know, they scan the forms and send it electronically to the VEC. But for the most part, most people have gone to exam tools. The difference is that snail mail, of course, takes weeks and exam tools takes probably um, uh, instantly, pretty much. So you can do that. And exam tools is great because exam tools actually even generates the exams and it um, does all the preparation and, and it even lists your exams too. So it's very, very neat, very interesting. And that, my friends, is why some people's license exams take weeks and some people take a day or two. The FCC, once they receive the application from the VEC, they will process it quickly, usually within a day. And um, you know, that usually is not the bottleneck. The bottleneck is, when, is how the exam team gets the results to the FCC. So that answers that. I mean, I'm accredited as a VEC in ARL, in Laurel, and also in GLARG, Greater Los Angeles Amateur Radio Group. All three of them. And they, I, um, you know, I do exams. And the difference is some of them are lower costs in terms of fees. Laurel is absolutely no fees. Uh, ARL charges a fee. And, of course, GLARG also charges a fee. I think the ARL's fee is the highest out of, of the, the three that I mentioned. Okay. And, um, yeah, that is um, that is pretty much what it is. You know, and being a V is a very rewarding thing. You get to see people get their amateur radio license. So if you want to become a VE, uh, look into it. I recommend getting at least the ARRL VEC certification because most teams use ARL. But if you want to join a Laurel team, you can also get accredited by Laurel. By the way, you might have heard the news about ham tests online going out of business unless he finds a buyer. Um, I don't have mo more details. I guess um, John, uh, you know, John W1AI, he is hanging it up. He's retiring. So, you know, good luck to him. And... Um, I hope that uh, somebody could pick it up and, and move forward with it. It's a real shame that we would lose a resource like that. So here's one that I find pretty interesting. And Craig here asks, um, do many hams, this is in Ham Radio Elmer's Facebook group, 
Do many hams understand why sometimes you can hear the other station very well and they can't hear you or the other way around? I find that my reception is better than a lot of stations and they can't hear me. It's a very good subject to discuss, okay? And um, so, of course, assuming both stations have comparable antennas. There are a couple of reasons. I mean, among the biggest of them is your local noise. If you have a lot of local noise, you can't hear faraway stations. You just can't. This is why, like, for example, in some countries, you try to call them and they're deaf as a post. Okay, you can't hear them because, well, they can't hear you because they, they're buried under this, all this noise. And this noise is coming from all sorts of things, from, you know, cheap electronics to military jamming. Yeah, some countries, they basically have military jamming a bunch of ham frequencies and um, that is one of the you know that's one of the main reasons but the other reason could be as well that maybe their receiver is not really that sensitive or their receiver you know isn't able to pick up um, signals properly of course some um, antennas um, being equal but if antennas are not equal you'll find that um, you know, the, the, there are stations with receiving antennas, particularly on your low band, bands that hear a lot better than stations without receiving antennas. Here's a question about the car wash. For those that have an antenna hardwired permanently mounted to their car, are you able to take it off before going into the car wash? After rain or the car wash, do you find that water goes through the seal and gets into the car. Getting mobile radio and antenna hardwired and installed with a professional installer that's, installer, that's just one question I had. Well, um, there are a number of solutions to this, ranging from difficult to easy. So the thing about the car wash is, yeah, you want to definitely take off any whip antennas and, um, you know, just make sure that you're not... Um, have anything for those brushes to whack around and my solution is really just don't use an automatic car wash because they scratch up your car anyway you know they have all sorts of recycled dirt and the ones in new york recycle the water too and some of them claim to be using a private well so um yeah but um well i use a private well too but the uh, you know the, the automatic car washes are terrible well, there are a couple other options. One of them is a so-called quick disconnect, which is basically a spring-loaded or you know threaded uh, connector on the antenna where you could disconnect the antenna quickly, you could disconnect it easily, and then be able to, um, to remove the whip and prevent it from flopping around. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is simply unscrew the entire antenna. I mean, that's easier with VHF antennas. I don't know why you'd be going in a car wash with HF antennas, but anyway, I'm, who am I to judge? But um, with VHF, UHF antennas, you're unscrewing the, um, the antenna itself. And make sure, you know, you have a cap, right? The, these antenna, these antenna um, connectors do come with a cap. And you could use that cap to prevent moisture from going in the coax. Now, um, one other way you could do it is some antennas fold down. 
Um, you, you might be able to get away with that if you fold it down and if you just keep it out of the way, um, you might be able to get away with that, right? You fold it down. Some of them you just unscrew something quickly and, un and fold it down and then you could put it back upright and then screw it down again. Lots of options to do stuff. Of course, um, you know, uh, the car wash is a hostile environment to any antenna, so I would avoid that. All right. So this week we're going to talk about de-expeditions. And I'll give you the 411 on what is a de-expedition, why you want to work them, and also how to work them. Because I can assure you that as a DXer, if you are interested in DXing at any level, you'll definitely want to work de-expeditions. So first of all, we're talking about de-expeditions, we have to talk about what the end goal is, and that essentially describes what the DXCC program is and other DX awards. I did a video way back when on DX awards at the ARL and other places. So the main, uh, the number one, the premier DX award that ham radio operators chase after is the DXCC. It's a DX Century Club where you earn DX awards for contacting at least 100 countries. That's why they call it the DX Century Club, right? Those 100 countries include your home country and they include other nearby countries. So here in the United States, it would include the United States. It would also include Canada. You kind of almost get those for free because those are so close to contact. Also includes Mexico, which, by the way, is also another neighboring country. The DXCC program, however, does not include only physical, actual, actual countries. It will include political subdivisions. For example, the United Kingdom includes England, Wales, Scotland, um, Great Britain, well, Great Britain is England, Wales, and Scotland, Scotland, and then you also have Northern Ireland. So all each of those are separate entity countries. They're called entities in the DXCC program. United Nations headquarters is another entity. But you know that's pretty much kind of where it gets a little um, off the beaten path. Have you ever heard of Kaliningrad? Kaliningrad is, I believe it's, it's called an oblast of Russia. It's not, it's far away from the main Russian um, landmass, right? And it is, um, it is in a part of Europe that's isolated from Russia itself. So because of the physical distance from the quote unquote parent entity, it tends to get us a different status. So it's an independent entity. So the expeditions essentially, um, they travel to some of these entities. So I was on a D expedition to United Nations headquarters for U1UN, which actually is located within New York City. But because it's the UN, 
it gets special status. So it gets special status as an independent entity. It is an independent. It's not a separate country, but it's not on U.S. soil. I used to work at the U.N., by the way, and I mentioned this on this radio show before, and it was, you know, you had diplomats smoking in their offices and all sorts of stuff. I think they kind of stopped that now. But, um, so that's that. But, you know, there are other islands. There's Bouvet Island, and Bouvet Island is an isolated island far away from land masses. You have, um, you have other islands, like, um, well, you have those islands in the Caribbean, but they're independent countries. But you have islands called, like, Cocos Island, which is off the coast of Costa Rica. You have islands in the Caribbean that, believe it or not, are territories and possessions of the United States. We're not just talking Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, they're their own entities each. But also you have Desecheo Island and Navasa Island. And this is where the de-expedition comes in. So people don't normally live on these uninhabited islands. However, DXers still want to contact people who are working radios from those islands. The reason being that these are entities listed on the ARRL DXCC list and other DX lists, which we'll talk about in a moment. So therefore, they need people to go there and set up radios and communicate. When they go there and set up radios and communicate, we call that a de-expedition. And in the de-expedition, that's the whole, the de-expedition is the whole act of organizing and going to that um, entity and actually setting up the radios and communicating is called an activation. So you activate those. The expeditions can be simple. You know, they could be one person uh, going to an entity, setting up radios and then operating. And then you could have somebody going somewhere on a holiday. So they might go on a vacation either by themselves or with their families. And they bring a radio along and they operate in their spare time or they operate um, probably just, you know, occasionally. Maybe they go to the beach in a day and they come back home and they operate radio. Some people I know do that. Or they go by the beach and they operate radio. And then when they get fed up, they go in the water and they hang out and then they come back. That's one way to do it. So these type of de-expeditions, those are casual. Then you have the next step up, which is kind of like the serious de-expedition. You have where these people are specifically going to places to operate. And they're not going to go on holiday. And these are usually very well planned. They're well funded. And they're usually um, well executed. They cost a lot of money, especially if you're going to faraway places that need vessel charter. And for vessel charter, you need to um, not, you know, you have to pay for the vessel, which sometimes could equal hundreds of thousands of dollars just because of the time involved, one. And also, two, these ships burn a lot of diesel fuel, and you have to pay for that diesel fuel. And that costs a lot of money. So, um, we're talking thousands of gallons of fuel. 
so that's um that's essentially how the the expeditions work but you know i mentioned funding so funding generally some people might underwrite and fund their own de-expeditions. They might, you know, they might be independently wealthy and they can fund the de-expedition. Some people might need a little more help and that's where like the DX foundations come in. So there are a few DX foundations worldwide. In the United States, there's a Northern California DX Foundation, NCDXF. There is INDEXA, that's the International DX Association. There are a few others. There are radio clubs, DX clubs. So these are radio clubs that are focused on DX, working distance stations. They may chip in as well too. But generally you find that any big de-expedition usually has a grant from the Northern California DX Foundation, NCDXF. And that, you know, that's the hallmark of a large de-expedition. Or not even probably a large de-expedition, even one to like a rare entity. So, um, yeah, that's how they get funded. How do people know what is a rare entity or not? Well, previously, the there used to be the DX Magazine used to host a survey. And that survey would list, would ask people, you know, which countries have you worked already and which ones you need. It was kind of inaccurate, but it was good enough to get a good picture on what entities are rare. Then along came Clublog. So Clublog is a web-based utility that tells you which DX entities are active and which ones are not so active. And as you can imagine, the Hermit Kingdom, North Korea, is the least active DXCC entity, meaning that nobody really goes there to operate because they can't because, you know, uh, the dear leader does not want them to does not want amateur radio operators operating so um so yes yeah, so the club log now takes an aggregate of people's logs so it takes logs so you upload your log to club log and then club log would then the the club log application would process that data and then see accurately very accurately which dx entities people need to work which ones they already have logged it got so good that the dx survey from the dx magazine kind of got shut down in favor of club log and that's how um the they determine which one is rare or not you know the expeditions are a controversial thing some people think that they shouldn't exist some people think that they, um, you know, they kind of cheapen DXing. And even in the DXing, people quabble, they, they quibble, not quabble, they quibble over different modes and such. Like some people don't like FT8. Some people want to see RTTY and some people want to see other modes. So that is how it works pretty much. Um... I enjoy working the expeditions. You know, I appreciate um, the thrill of the chase. And a well-run de-expedition usually gets as many people in the log and gets a lot of unique people in the log, meaning people who've never worked that entity. They get a lot of unique calls in, in the log. So it's very nice to have them. It is very, very, um, you know, it's very curious how 
ham radio operators kind of, you know, engage in this, um, in this, this uh, fantastic activity. Now, some D expeditions not only go for radio. Some people might go with scientific expeditions, and they have science work, and then they incorporate some radio into their either their recreation or their work. Recently, with the FT8 WW, um, Terry went down there and he, he operated radio. So it was very nice to um, work him. There are others who are, like I said, like scientific researchers, like some de-expeditions to far-off islands actually work with schools to gather scientific data and send it back. And they work with other places to get scientific um, input. So it's always good. And it's not just science, by the way. Um, kids in schools learn geography and and international relations and all sorts of stuff. So the de expedition is is a pretty integral, important for um, thing for ham radio. But it's not just the DXCC program from ARL. There are other DX programs such as IOTA Islands on the Air, where um, it's by the RSGB in Britain, where they. They recognize contacts from different islands that are not necessarily ARL DXCC entities. So, um, you know, there are expeditions specifically for D for IOTA. And of course, Parks on the Air. Well, Parks on the Air isn't technically a D expedition. It's just activating local parks, state parks, and um, other local parks. So it's um, a national parks, I believe. So it's very, um, you know, it's the thrill of the chase. But you don't find much the expeditions focusing on POTA. This recent one with Sable Island, they're actually kind of focusing on POTA, parks on the air. Um, they're not really focusing on POTA. They are operating from a national park in Canada. So it, um, you, you might find parks chasers um, chasing them. So that's everything you need to know about the expeditions. You know, this it's one of my favorite things about the hobby, the DXing, and I really hope that um, you can uh, learn about it too. Well, my friends, it's been another fun show right here on WRMI Legends 5050-5050 on your shortwave dial. I am Ria N2RJ. You can send your comments and suggestions to Ria at N2RJ.com. That's Romeo India Alpha at November 2. RomeoJuliet.com or you can e you can mail P.O. Box 73 Sussex, New Jersey 07461 and I really hope that you enjoy um, we're into spring now in the Northern Hemisphere I really hope that um, you enjoy your uh, warmer weather here and for those in other countries like for example Australia and New Zealand they're going into winter now Enjoy that too, even though I don't enjoy the seasons. My friends, I really wish you all the best in everything you do. And of course, um, you have a great day and a great week ahead. Peace and 73.